This is Good Faith Effort with Ari Lamb. And here's your host, Rabbi Dr. Ari Lamb. Hello, hello, and welcome to Good Faith Effort. I'm your host, Ari Lamb. We have an amazing show coming up. We actually have two guests today. Uh, you get a bonus guest, a Jewish journalist from Jerusalem and a Muslim journalist from the Arab country of Bahrain. And we're going to have an incredible conversation about some of the most significant developments in the world of faith in recent memory. And by the way, while you're here, don't forget to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts because it really helps people find the show. Uh, so anyway, let's get down to business. But first, a bit about what we do here. America has long been influenced by the ideas and values of the Bible. So each week, we take a look at a different portion of the Bible and identify a big idea or a big question that comes out of it and then talk about it with thinkers, writers, journalists, artists, faith leaders, and people from all sorts of backgrounds and traditions. So let's dive right into this week's big idea, which is all about dreaming big. In the portion we're talking about today, which is roughly chapters 37 through 40 of the book of Genesis, we encounter for the first time one of my very favorite characters, not just in the Bible, but in the history of storytelling, and that's Joseph. Now, many people, at least if you're a pop culture nerd like me, will already know the basic outline of the Joseph story from Joseph in the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, but just in case, allow me to refresh your memory. So basically, Joseph, as a young man, has all these dreams that seem to predict that he's destined to one day be a great leader. But these dreams pretty quickly seem like they're destined to go nowhere because Joseph ends up getting sold into slavery in Egypt, which was pretty much the most horrible fate you could suffer in the ancient world. And for decades, Joseph suffers in Egypt. But eventually, somehow, he gets the chance to perform a service for the Egyptian pharaoh. And then somehow he ends up getting appointed as the finance minister for all of Egypt. And it's a totally wild ride, rags to riches, lots of drama along the way. And like I said, it's one of my favorite stories. In fact, it's so much my favorite that I want to call your attention to a very ancient tradition about it that the first time I encountered it seemed kind of odd to me. And that is that in ancient Hebrew sources, some of the oldest ones that we have, Joseph is traditionally referred to as Yosef HaTzadik, which in English means Joseph the Righteous. Now, look, I love Joseph. Amazing character. But, I mean, really? I mean, Joseph was certainly a very righteous man, but we're talking about the Bible here. I mean, surely there were plenty of other righteous people in the Bible, right? I mean, Abraham, Moses, Isaiah, come on. There are a bunch of ways to answer this question, but probably my favorite is this. If you look at all the main characters in the book of Genesis, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, I mean, just go down the list, every single one of them faces some serious challenges in their life. And Joseph's no exception. He leads an extraordinarily hard life. But of all these biblical heroes, Joseph was actually the first to never once speak directly to God. All the other figures suffer, it's true, but hey, they could always talk to God about it. And believe me, there's nothing that puts things in perspective quite like speaking to the creator of the universe. But Joseph, he didn't have that. He wasn't the first main character in the Bible to suffer, but he was the first to do it worrying that he might be alone. And that's why Joseph specifically was called the righteous, right? Even compared to all those other biblical heroes, 
Because through all of this, through all of these challenges and through all of the loneliness, Joseph not only kept his faith, but actually continued to dream big dreams. Because remember, as the Bible tells us, Joseph never forgot those dreams he had as a kid, those big dreams. He always believed in the destiny that God had laid out for him. And that's what made him a legend. That's what made him truly righteous. And I got to tell you, that's exactly the spirit we need in these times. In a deeply polarized society, in the midst of a pandemic, in a world that always seems torn by conflict, it's really easy to lose our ability to dream. And it's tempting to be dismissive of those who do still try to dream big dreams. But it's precisely that capacity to dream, to imagine the world not as it is, but as it ought to be, that we need now more than ever. And if we can do that, well, then I think we'll be able to look back at this time, at this moment in history, not merely as the end of something terrible, but as the beginning of something incredible. And so to talk about the importance of big dreams, I actually brought on two people who both had front row seats to one of the most ambitious foreign policy achievements of my lifetime, the Abraham Accords, which just a few months ago marked the normalization of relations between Israel, the Jewish state, and some of the leading countries in the Arab world, Bahrain and the United Arab Emirates. And this marked the first normalization of relations between an Arab country and Israel in decades. So to talk about it, I actually brought on two journalists, one from Israel and one from Bahrain. So without further ado, let's get to our first guest, which is Lahav Harkov, senior contributing editor of the Jerusalem Post and an amazing follow on Twitter, one of my all-time favorites. Uh, Lahav, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me on. So I want to start with the Abraham Accords themselves and why they're about so much more than just internal politics in the Middle East. And the key, I think, is in the name, Abraham. So, Lahav, can you tell us a little bit about who Abraham is and why the Accords are framed as an Abrahamic project? Abraham is the sort of first forefather of the Jewish people. We have uh, sort of three forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Abraham is also the forefather that we share with Arabs. So in the biblical tradition and also in the Muslim tradition, Abraham had two sons, Isaac and Ishmael, and Ishmael begat the Arabs eventually, and Isaac begat the Jews. And it's a little bit funny to me to be speaking about this in English, I have to say, because I'm used to, you know. (laughs) Begat uh, is one of those words that just rolls off the tongue. (laughs) Jewish school, yeah. In any case, so I think that when these accords were drawn up, A lot of the people on both sides sort of sought to emphasize the shared heritage and shared beliefs between Jews and Muslims. You know, in Israel, I think a lot is done to avoid making the conflict between Israel and Arabs and specifically the conflict between Israel and the Palestinians a religious conflict. Because once it becomes a religious conflict, there are Muslims the world over. and, And Israel wants to say, like, that's not who our beef is with, so to speak. And so I think that this serves that goal very well. And I also think that uh, both the United Emirates and Bahrain have emphasized, especially in more recent years, tolerance for people of different faiths and different backgrounds. Both are countries with a very large population of expats, of people from all around the world, either as foreign workers and in sort of blue collar jobs, but also in business, in high powered sort of business jobs. And so 
I think it's a genuine sentiment, but it's also sort of an important way to attract these people to come work for them to show that they truly are tolerant. So sometimes when you do something that's instrumental, it turns into something that has a broader purpose. And so I think both countries, for different reasons, were emphasizing religious tolerance. And it came to fruition in a somewhat unexpected way this summer. And I think what's so interesting is that, you're right, Israel has always really gone out of its way to kind of play down the religious elements of conflict. And yet in this sort of positive step forward, all sides seem to have kind of gone out of their way to emphasize sort of religious elements of this. And I I find that so fascinating. I'm speculating here a little bit. I would be surprised if it came from the Israeli side specifically. Right. Just because of of the people involved and and sort of their usual sort of rhetoric and way of framing things that I report on. I do think that um, Jared Kushner, President Trump's special advisor, who is really instrumental in bringing these accords together, I think he has very much emphasized the religious elements of the sort of things that both divide and unite nations in the Middle East for a long time. Even before the Abraham Accords, he had talked about how, you know, Muslims around the world really want to be able to come to Israel and visit the Al-Aqsa Mosque. And while the Al-Aqsa Mosque, which is on the Temple Mount, is open, you have to go through security checks, but it's open for people to come visit. If you come for a country that doesn't have diplomatic relations with Israel, then you can't get there. So, you know, if you're a Muslim from France, you can get there without a visa. If you're a Palestinian, you know, there's all the security considerations, but a lot of Palestinians get there. But if you were from Bahrain or the United Arab Emirates, because there were no diplomatic relations, they couldn't come. And so I've heard from many people from those countries that this is incredibly meaningful for them and that they really want to come visit. So that element clearly was important to certainly the Arab countries involved in this deal. Right. There are beaches all over the world, but the Holy Land has a lot of uh, other great stuff in it, too. So... (laughs) Yeah. Last week I was in a briefing with the Bahrain's, um, let's see if I can get his exact title right. I think it was industry, commerce and travel minister or tourism minister. Now we're talking. Yeah. Because, you know, trade is and business is a huge part of these deals, which we can get into if you'd like. But he said he had a very, very busy trip, but he had some free time after eight o'clock at night and he went to walk through Jerusalem's old city. And he was like, I don't know if this sounds strange. I don't know if other people say this, but I really felt like I was in a holy place. And we were like, no, no, a lot of people say that. <laughs> that's amazing. Um, like, I think that's incredible. Yeah, I, I think so, too. I mean, I, and, and it's amazing to hear it from people who, you know, that we had little to no connection with before. You know, and and to see that we all sort of feel the same thing when we're in that place. I mean, it's incredible. And I actually want to go a little bit deeper on that and and sort of the business element of this as well, which you mentioned before. And so in the kind of traditional American Orthodox Jewish communities where I grew up, so you have what's called a, a kiddish club where a bunch of guys get together during synagogue or, you know, I'm a rabbi, so ideally after synagogue uh, for a little yeah. food, <laughs> a little food and drink and just kind of just kind of like shoot the breeze with each other. And, you know, people talk about sports or politics or whatever is going on in the world. And you usually just get a bunch of dumb hot takes about everything, which, you know, is half the fun. Uh, but for years, one thing you'd always hear at the Kiddish Club, you know, is people saying, man, if only those, you know, so-called foreign policy experts at the State Department were willing to encourage Israel and the Arab states to work together as friends, you know, the Middle East could be this incredible hub of innovation and commerce and human flourishing. And yet at the same time, you get all these foreign policy experts for years who guaranteed again and again that this would never work. 
So in the Abraham Accords, I kind of think of it as the triumph of the Kiddish Club over the foreign policy establishment. So I guess my question to you is, what did the Kiddish Club know that the foreign policy experts didn't? Well, if we're talking about Kiddish Clubs, I, I do think <laughs> that in the American Jewish community, there were enough people who were involved in business and were doing business with people from the Gulf to realize that this is a place, you know, where there was enough sort of tolerance and enough, you know, enough of a goal to be practical and not just ideological, that there was potential there. And uh, in recent years, there have been a lot of examples of interfaith delegations of, of rabbis and they tended to be modern Orthodox rabbis <laughs> um, going to Gulf states. And so I've never considered that before. But now that you say it, I, I do think that there's definitely an element there. And what I have considered and what I know is that this is something that certain rabbis who are involved in interfaith efforts, like um, Rabbi Mark Schneier of the Hampton Synagogue, he has his own interfaith organization. And then not a rabbi, but, you know, uh, Malcolm Honline, the head of the conference of uh, presidents of major Jewish organizations. I feel like the Simon um, Wiesenthal Center has been involved in this kind of thing. Yeah. So these are people and organizations that saw the potential and sort of talked about it before it seemed so realistic and concrete. And what are the business commercial ramifications of this? I mean, half the fun now is that the Middle East is really going to be just a global hub, it seems like. Well, first of all, it's very good for the tourism in Dubai. There is an expected 70,000 Israelis going to Dubai if for Hanukkah. Let's make it happen, Which is Captain. insane. <laughs> yeah, there's like, I think, 19, quote unquote, green countries, which are countries that Israelis can go to without having to quarantine when they come home. But there are only like two that let Israelis in without quarantining, and they're the UAE and Rwanda. So Rwanda is not such a vacation hotspot. But Dubai is, you know, great. It's hopping to the extent that the health ministry is not worried about coronavirus in Dubai, but they're worried about Israelis passing coronavirus onto each other while in Dubai and not socially distanced. That's exactly the twist we wanted from 2020. Exactly. <laughs> the only thing stopping um, Israeli tourism to Dubai <laughs> is Israelis yeah. can coronavirus. That's amazing. A hundred percent. So, so first of all, in tourism, it's going to be great. And I think That's um, wonderful. there's an expectation that Emiratis and Bahrainis will also come visit Israel, especially to, to come see Jerusalem. But beyond that, there's a lot of trade potential, especially, you know, in Israel's sort of high-tech expertise. So it's not a lot of tangible goods per se, although there is some of that. There's already Israeli produce being sold in the UAE, but a lot of sort of services and consulting on, on high-tech matters. Okay, so obviously there's a new incoming administration in D.C. with Joe Biden becoming president. So what does this mean for the new world we're building with the Abraham Accords, right? Can we still dream big about the future of the Middle East and the descendants of Abraham? You know, President-elect Biden has been very positive about the Abraham Accords. You know, there are certain things that maybe Prime Minister Netanyahu was less happy about that Biden said, like, for example, that he would like the Palestinian issue to be more involved and Maybe there's a concern that Biden would use normalization to try to leverage concessions from Israel on the Palestinian issue. But that's somewhat speculative because he didn't really say that right out. He just said, you know, that the Palestinians, there should be peace with the Palestinians too. But, you know, it, it seems like when it comes to foreign policy, the Abraham Accords is like the only thing that Biden wants to continue from Trump. Right. So um, I, I think we can expect to see more of it. I think that the conditions may be a bit diff different. 
And there's been a lot of talk about Saudi Arabia recognizing Israel. I think the Saudis are waiting to see sort of what steps Biden will take and what they can kind of get out of it. Because at the end of the day, foreign policy is about realism. You know, um, the UAE did buy fighter jets in the end because, you know, they weren't going to get the thumbs up from Israel, probably without normalization. Now, it wasn't officially in the deal, right? But it seems to be something that they had considered. And I think that's legitimate. I mean, I don't think that turns this peace deal into an arms deal, like some critics have said. I think it's legitimate for every country to look out for its own interests. So, you know, Saudi Arabia as well is probably going to wait and see sort of how they can benefit from it, not just as normalization. You know, that that they know that Biden wants normalization for Israel and Arab countries. And so they'll say, well, what else can you give us from it? But I do think that those efforts will continue. I think there's every indication from what Biden himself has said and what his sort of foreign policy staff has said. You know, there are concerns about Biden in Israel and in Gulf states for a different reason, which is Iran. I mean, part of what brought these countries together is shared concerns about the Iranian nuclear threat and really how vocal Prime Minister Netanyahu was about that threat and how willing he was really to stand up for Israel's security. And, you know, Biden now wants to rejoin the Iran deal, which both Israel and the UAE and Bahrain and Saudi Arabia all think is very problematic because it, in effect, kicks the can down the road. It, it doesn't say Iran can't have a nuclear weapon. It says Iran can have a nuclear weapon in 2030, which will in all likelihood still be a threat, you know, to all of these countries. So far as I know, that's a bad thing in 2030 as well, right? Right, exactly. Unless there's like some sort of big surprise regime change. But like, I don't think anybody should be building their foreign policy around that. Right. So there's that concern. But I think that in a way it could continue to keep these countries close because they'll still need to cooperate on security issues. Well, so my last question for you is that I know journalists from Israel and the Arab world have had relationships for a while now, but it really does seem like we are entering kind of a new era where the kinds of conversations we're having now are just going to be more normal and more visible. So can you tell me, not even as an analyst, but really just as a person, you know, as Lahav, what, what are the Abraham Accords going to mean for allowing new friendships to blossom in these countries, whether among journalists or policymakers or just among regular people? Like, what is this? what does the new Middle East look like from that perspective? I personally had not a lot of experience with Arab journalists who were not Israeli. Right. Before this job that I have now, I reported on the Knesset for eight years and, and I got to know Israeli Arabs very well in a way that Israel's somewhat fragmented society did not allow me to before. But as far as people from the UAE and Bahrain, you know, I'm, I'm now sort of getting to know some of my colleagues from those countries, which has been interesting. It's also interesting to hear their challenges you know, under a, a countries that don't have the protections of free speech that, you know, Israel and the U.S. have, they're not so vocal about that issue necessarily, but you can read between the lines sometimes. So so it's very interesting in that way. But it's also just, yeah, it's, it's really nice how normal it is. Um, I spent a couple days in Abu Dhabi with the first Israeli delegation or the first open and official Israeli delegation to the UAE. And while meetings were happening that journalists weren't allowed into, there was a dinner arranged for us. And I was sitting with a few people. Um, there was someone from the foreign ministry. There was a woman who was a director of a history museum, which and then I got to visit. So that was fun. And then uh, like a director of a TV station. And it was me and another um, Israeli journalist. Yeah, it was really interesting. And it was interesting to hear people's impressions of Israel. And the the two 
um, sort of younger people at the table. The director of the TV channel was was a bit older, but the two younger people, they had studied abroad, um, had great English uh, because of that. And they both had Israeli friends who they knew from going to college in the U.S. and in England and who they were in touch with. And they were so excited now that, you know, they'll all get they'll get to visit each other instead of having to meet in some third country if they ever want to see each other again. <laughs> Yeah, and I thought it was it was pretty cool. I mean, to begin with, it was cool that these people were sort of friends in this way that was, you know, despite the government. Because I think that, you know, it, it shows the power of, of people and the things in common that people have that really is bigger than politics. Um, but the fact that, yeah, now they can visit each other is, is makes it, is what makes it so real. I mean, just that's the kind of news we need in 2020. Amen to that. Guys, you can follow Lahav on Twitter at Lahav Harkov. Uh, she's an awesome follow and read all of her stuff at the Jerusalem Post. And uh, Lahav, thanks so much for being a part of this conversation. Thank you for inviting me. My next guest today is Adia Ahmed, a journalist from Bahrain, president of the Bahraini Journalist Association. Adia, it is wonderful to have you on the podcast. It's wonderful to be with you, Avi. You know, I was speaking to Lahav earlier about the Abraham Accords and the significance of the name of the Abraham Accords. And I'm curious to get your perspective on this. What does Abraham mean to Bahrain, to the United Arab Emirates? What is what is the significance of the name? Wow, the name is very significant, Avi. He is the forefather of many prophets. It's the roots. We have always said that we have something in common. Our roots, we are cousins. Muslims and Jews are cousins. And and by saying that, I'm not leaving anyone out. On the contrary, we are all one family. This whole world is one family. But the deep-rooted DNA and bloodline among Jews and Muslims is unique. And it goes back to Prophet Abraham, who was the father of prophets. And in the bloodline of Prophet Abraham came many other prophets that we all believe in. And I think that naming the accords uh, after Prophet Abraham in in itself has a lot of significance because it sends out a message of how close we one day were and how politics created a rift. And one family and one blood should never be separated by politics. On the contrary, we should always stand as human beings with each other, but we should also remember that we come from the same bloodline. And to me, it's so exciting. And this is why I think the Abraham Accords have such significance, not just for the specific region that it deals with, but for the world as a whole, because I think people across the world, certainly in America, are used to associating the Middle East with just, oh, it's religious conflict. And I don't think people are used to, as they should be, thinking of faith as actually an accelerant to positive change. And that's what seems to be going on here. Right. Is that right? Of course, faith should always bring positive change. What's going on in the Middle East has nothing to do with religions. We live in a country of 1.5 million people, and I grew up in a Catholic church. I'm a Muslim. I grew up with a cross on the top of our building, and I learned my religion in the classrooms there. I was surrounded by Hindu, Buddhist, Jew, uh, Muslim, Catholic, uh, Protestant, friends, different religions, different sects and different nationalities. No, faith is in having faith in humanity, having faith in human beings, having faith in peace, not looking at each other as where your background is from, 
what is your religion? What is your sect? I think faith is a much bigger word that needs to be respected than to label people according to their religion or sect. You form an opinion about people based on your humanity. And this is where faith uh, is tested. I think many people raise slogans about faith, but when it comes to reality, they fail this test because they don't know the true meaning of faith. You know, and Adia, I actually want to speak to you about the role of Bahrain specifically in moving the Abraham Accords forward. For centuries, Bahrain has been a cultural and commercial crossroads since even before Alexander the Great. You know, I'm a historian, so wearing my historian's hats, right? So Bahrain is a very important place. And so on the one hand, it shouldn't be surprising that Bahrain was ready to play this role. But for most Americans, Bahrain isn't a household name, right? So what should Americans know about the big dreaming that's going on these days in Bahrain around religious coexistence? Wow, nice question, Avi. Well, I said it, um, I, I, I say how many years ago this was. I went to a Catholic church as a Muslim when I was five years old, and that's exactly 42 years ago. And when a woman admits how old she is, she probably <laughs> has a very strong message to convey that's worth it. <laughs> I was going to say, this is breaking news. <laughs> <laughs> because what I'll say I feel is worth revealing this information. If I studied in a Catholic church, and I grew up as a Muslim, respecting each and every person, whether they are religious or not, whatever religion or background they come from. This means that 42 years ago, this was the case in Bahrain, within one kilometer square of land. You have a mosque and you have a church and you have a synagogue and you have a Buddhist temple and Hindu's temple. Within that area parameter, you have all these religious things, religious sites where people can practice their faith. But when I went to this Catholic school, there were generations that had graduated before I did, which means that we're going to go back to 50 and 55 years ago. If this was Bahrain 55 years ago, imagine how it is today, Avi. Do you know that many people for years, we've been raising the slogans about faith and coexistence and love, but you can say these beautiful words and not have them. But when you have them and you've lived them, you speak about them with passion. What people in America should see is a small island and a population of 1.5 million people who have lived in peace together. And this is why after a political rift between Bahrain and Israel that had gone on for decades, eventually what happened? People decided that it's time for peace. You cannot continue not to have peace with others because you cannot live in peace if you don't have it. And this is why for a country like Bahrain, it was easy. Everything was ready. People uh, were on good terms with each other and people loved each other. We never had any restrictions about who to become friends with. When we travel outside, we were always meeting Israeli people. And that was never a problem. And, although, and I've said that a lot. It used to always break my heart if I see Israeli people hesitant about saying where they come from when they meet Arabs, especially Arabs wow. from the Gulf. Yeah, this was heartbreaking. And I've seen it in an elevator. You would say hello to an Israeli family and you look at each other. You just like each other. They have two kids. I have two kids. They have three kids. I have three kids. <laughs> I'll tell you, growing up, so I come from a, obviously, a, you know, an Orthodox Jewish family. I'm a rabbi. And whenever, you know, growing up, we would go on vacation to countries where we were, you know, a little bit afraid of being ourselves. So the move would always be that instead of wearing a yarmulke, you'd put on a baseball hat. And no, 
nobody's going to know. And of course, like, you know, <laughs> it's pretty easy to tell. <laughs> but yeah, it's easy to tell, but it's respectful. And when I address you, I should address you as rabbi, right? Oh, no, Ari's fine. Ari's <laughs> fine. <laughs> but yeah, We're friends. We're... That's the beauty of all this. We're friends. So, you know, actually, and that gets to a, a, an important question, which is, you know, when you think of Abraham, so you think of the the major monotheistic religions, you have Judaism, you have Islam in the Abraham Accords. So how does Christianity fit into this, right? Why should Christians celebrate this milestone achievement? And what does it mean specifically for, for Christians both outside the region and Christians in the Middle East? For Christians, this is achieving peace. Whether it is the same bloodline or prophets are from different bloodlines or not, but this is achieving peace. For many years, the Christians have witnessed to see Muslims and Jews have a rift. And I, and Christianity is about peace. Christianity has always advocated for peace, for them to see these two religions. And we call them Adyan Samawiyya, which means that these are religions with books. So Christianity also has a book. For them to finally see that these two other religions with books now are getting along, I think it's an achievement because they are also playing a very important role. And we're not leaving anyone out because each person who has advocated through a good word or through any effort, exerted any effort to bring us together, it never mattered what religion they are from. And I'm sure that they are happy to see us together. Again, we're not leaving anyone out. But Muslims and Jews needed to move forward. Muslims and Christians never had problems. Politics mixed things. Muslims and Jews never hated each other. It was all politics, Anna. And the people who knew how to hate will continue to hate. People who were raised not to hate will never hate. And if there are generations like us, our children will never learn to hate any religion. So I think, uh, yeah, of course they will celebrate. And I'm a bloodline of Prophet Muhammad. And when this happened, I was happy because people we've always said they are our cousins. We never were able to even sit and talk to them or travel to their country. Why was that? Because of politics. It's very sad, by the way, when you see people fight over politics. And what does that cost? A rift in human relations. I'm very happy. I'm happy that everyone helped us achieve it. And the day our ambassadors stood in the White House and Donald Trump stood there, did anyone look at him, whether he's Jewish or he's Muslim? He's a Christian also. And everyone celebrated, everyone clapped, everyone was happy. Mostly, I think it's worth mentioning the efforts exerted by Muslim, Jewish, Catholic, Christian, Buddhist, and people in the media. People in the media made this work. I mean, the way I think about it is just, again, looking at the scope of and trajectory of human history, some of the most remarkable achievements, sometimes for ill, but but mostly for good, some of the most remarkable achievements in human history have come from faith and from traditional religion. And the great tragedy of humanity has been that sort of these achievements had to come separately. Jews achieved what Jews have achieved. Muslims have achieved what Muslims have achieved and Christians have done their own thing. This is really the first time 
in human history that this kind of partnership is possible. I mean, it's really incredible from that perspective if you look at the the potential of what we can achieve here. So on that note, I mean, we're in a totally new world now. We're building a new Middle East. We're building a new a new chapter in the history of faith across the world. What should we look out for in the next decade? I know you're descended from prophets, but none of us are prophets ourselves. But that being the case, right, what should we look forward to in the next era of the Middle East? Can you imagine, Rabbi Ari, <laughs> can you imagine a world where people don't look at each other based on their religion? Can you imagine how much we can work against extremism? Can you imagine how this world will be when it comes to anti-Semitism? How this world will be when it comes to Islamophobia? If people who understand their religions properly are leaders in their societies, then you will not allow a bunch of extremist terrorists to, in the name of religion, kill others and uh, say that it is halal, it is allowed to kill this person and this person because they are not Muslims or the other way around. These people will come to an end. And I think that the Abraham Accords are not political accords. I think they are more about reminding people of how, if they stand together, they will be able to combat extremism and combat. I hate using words like that, but can you imagine a world where people like us, who don't want to see someone die because of his or her religion, or someone die because of what country they come from, I think we are the people who will make a difference. We gave a lot of time for people with ideologies who first initially said that they have an ideology that is religious, and then that religious ideology became an extremist ideology. We lost a lot for decades. We lost people. We lost children. We lost moms. We lost brothers. We lost sisters. For what was that? Religion? I don't think Judaism, Islam, or Christianity or any religion has ever accepted that. And I think the world will change after the Abraham Accords if the politicians allow it to change and if politicians allow people also to have a say in this and to stop anything that brings harm to people. Amen to that. So if you read Arabic or just use Google Translate, it actually works perfectly. You can find Adia on Twitter at Adia Ahmed. Uh, and uh, Adia, where can the people find your work these days? They can find me on Twitter, of course. They can find me on Instagram. They can find me on Facebook. Everyone, you know what to do. You know what to do. Follow Adia. She's a, a voice for good, a voice for peace. This is really exciting. Uh, and Adia, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Rabbi Ari. I enjoyed it. It was beautiful. Thank you. I know 2020 has been a brutal year, and we all just want it to be over already. But there are also some truly exceptional things going on right now. I mean, think medical innovations that will hopefully not only stop COVID, but help us stop other diseases as well, or world-altering innovations like the Abraham Accords that might just change how our children and grandchildren live together. Part of being able to see this is remembering that God is watching and has a plan for us that we may not always be able to see clearly. But in addition, God expects us to put in the work by continuing to dream those big dreams that might just help make tomorrow a little brighter than yesterday. This is Ari Lam making a good faith effort, and I'll see you next time.
Good Faith Effort was created and written by Ari Lamb. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice because it really helps others find the show. Our executive producer is Josh Cross. The show is produced and edited by Paul Ruest. This is a Joshua Network podcast presented by B'nai Zion. Follow us on Twitter at GFaithEffort. Follow Ari at Ari Lamb and sign up for our email list at thejoshuanetwork.com. The Joshua Network is now Soul Shop.